1: hello everybody it is lenny murphy here with episode five of the green book podcast before this we were trying to think of some pithy star wars reference for episode five we won't go there but what we are going to do is to talk about the upcoming grit report this is kind of a labor of love uh this this session because we are going to be talking to our secret weapon nelson whipple and before i i actually bring Nelson on. I wanna give you a little bit of background because uh, he's a bit of an unsung hero. I've known Nelson for, gosh, probably 10 years or so. And uh, an amazing researcher, and the opportunity presented itself a few years ago to uh, bring him in to help with grit. Little did I know, that that help would turn into an amazing collaboration where Nelson has raised the bar on every single aspect of GRIT from questionnaire design certainly through the analysis and in writing he's driven the expansion of the usability of GRIT data to address other use cases and other product lines that we are launching he has just made everything better he challenges me to be better and most recently for this GRIT report that is about to come out I was was ill during that time, we were under a deadline. And he did most of the heavy lift from a writing standpoint. It's we've tried to keep it about 50 50. This next report that is uh, is coming out, it's probably 90%. And it's damn good. So with that, I would like to bring on my friend, my colleague, Nelson Whipple. Nelson, welcome.
2: Thank you, Lenny. And uh gonna be hard to follow that introduction.
1: Everything I said is absolutely true, and I just haven't had the opportunity to say that. So Nelson, do you want to give the audience a little bit more background on, on you before the grit era of your time?
2: I spent most of my life working with four smaller consulting firms on strategic projects for clients of all sizes in all kinds of industries, mostly using conjoint analysis and building simulation models, but also using other techniques, mostly quantitative work, but also uh, what they call qualiquant. quant projects in some circles where you do the qualitative and the quantitative so that you get the market input to the vocabulary and so forth, built directly into it. So I'm pretty sensitive to a lot of the different areas that we look at and also what they're supposed to mean and the impact that they're supposed to have. So when we look at things like this, the selection criteria for suppliers and methods, you know, there's always at the top of the list, um, insights quality, but that's hard to define. And it's not defined in terms of any of these specific methods. And it's interesting to see how we can discern whether people are actually getting the quality that they say they want from the kinds of things we collect.
1: Yeah. So, and we always make a point in the, the introduction to grit that it is an evolving tool and. That's a great example, right? We I think every iteration we realize there's a better way to ask this question, or there's a follow up question we need to ask, or uh, sometimes we don't need to ask that anymore. So we can get to to better and better data. But we're probably putting a cart for the horse. I think we'll get into some of that stuff. One thing we don't have the opportunity to do is the authors often is to kind of step back and think and share what we personally found to be most interesting from this you know massive data set that. That we collect and and the analyses. And again, I want to reiterate that most of the heavy duty analysis, uh, Nelson is far closer to even than I am. And taking just a little bit of a step back from from the the grunt work of producing grit, what did you find most interesting? What popped out for you when you were doing the analysis? I'm thinking this is important. This is something that that really is a finding that is impactful for the industry as a whole.
2: Well, first I was looking through the draft that we got back from the designer. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed the most, what stood out the most to me was the number of blank pages in it. Okay. And, <laughs> and first I thought, oh, those must be the ones that Lenny wrote, but no. Uh, they're actually the ones where the commentaries are going to go. And I just wanted to mention that so that people know where we are in the process, but also because the quality of the commentaries has gotten a lot better over the years. And so I'm looking Mm -hmm. forward to when we have those in this edition, and then I'm sure we'll find even more impactful stuff because those have, and this is not a plug because I don't do that, but uh, I was really impressed with the ones that we've gotten last couple of issues, I think. And it'll Mm -hmm. be really interesting to see what we get this time too. Uh, I think overall what stood out for me is if we think about two of the sections that we don't usually make very much out of um, maybe because we save them for the last, maybe because we don't see much change, the day in the life of the insights professional and the evolving insights professional, those kind of seem to be in some ways at the core of the findings, because one of the things that we, one of the things that we always see is that when we look at the day in the life, which is how much of your time are you spending on these various activities? We always find that it doesn't change year to year and it literally doesn't change, even though. We, the sample might change a little bit, even though there might be other, the, the percentages literally don't change for what they're spending on implementing the research, uh, designing the research, managing the research, analyzing, reporting and, and consulting and so forth. But if you pull it apart more, you start to see that there are lots of things going on underneath that. And that one of the things that we see when we pull it apart is that people that are using more technology. Are we, I think always had the supposition that if you leverage technology more and automate more things, then you can spend more time consulting. But what we found on the buyer side is that some of the people that are investing more in technology are investing in it so they can bring more of the research in house. So they're actually spending more time on the research and a lower percentage of time on the consulting. So that's interesting. And it gets to this dynamic that we see under all of the sections, which is good to think about is that some people are leveraging actually using suppliers more so they can spend less time on research and spend more time consulting. And then other people are leveraging technology so that they can take more of that work in-house and control more of it. And that was a trend that I think is a little bit counterintuitive to what we had expected, but we see that through all of the different sections on supplier criteria, the methods they're using. And I think it, it gets to one of the things that seems to be a major theme is that in addition to the people that are taking, investing in technology solutions and DIY so they can do more of the project, they also seem to be doing things that are not things that they would want the supplier to do, so it's not actually taking work away from the supplier. So we see that the major investments or to do visualization that consistently wave after wave after wave, suppliers get low scores from, from the buyers. Uh, always low on data visualization. They seem to be investing in it more and perhaps doing more of that themselves. So what we see as a driver of satisfaction, but as a driver of satisfaction for buyers is reporting, they want good reporting from suppliers, but they don't necessarily need good visualization. Cause I they think they've given up on that expectation to a large extent and more of them are doing the visualization themselves. So while they need the results to be clear and to be accurate and to be high quality, they're not necessarily at this point in time expecting suppliers to take it all the way into the organization.
1: That is an interesting point. It makes me think about for years when we looked at uh, adoption of emerging methods, a few things stood out. Social media analytics, text analytics, uh, big data as having in use uh, or being considered levels on the buyer side and on the supplier side. And the supposition that we've repeated it every year is those may be areas where that ship has sailed for the supplier community. We missed the opportunity to rise to the occasion to deliver that buyer need. But this year, this wave, we finally saw pretty close to parity from an adoption standpoint that suppliers were now just as engaged in utilizing those solutions as buyers, which begs the question, were we wrong (laughs) because the supplier community decided there is a, there is an opportunity here to capture some of that business from the buyers that they were they obviously were doing it, but they were doing it with some, and some other resource, either another type of supplier in house, something. Um, but I would suspect that a supplier would not offer something unless there were buyers for that. So we see that, that change, but it's an interesting question for us to think about as an industry, if that is true, that the supplier community stepped up and was able to capture a seat at the table for lack of a better term in those solutions. Is there an opportunity that if the around data visualization, for instance, those functions that buyers are keeping in-house because they're not getting what they need from the supplier community for suppliers to step up and start earning that business and we'll see that reflected down the road. Now, I, I, I know you prefer to look at the data, so this is an opinion. Um, what do you think? <laughs> is that an aspirational goal that, that we can, on the supplier side, uh, shoot for that may bear fruit?
2: Well, you know, I think that what we see in the data, to go back to the data, is that there hasn't been as much opportunity as there used to be over the last two years to think about the future. So I'm not sure that's the question that people are asking. I know that's the question you're asking because you're very future oriented, but remember we've got the five big buckets of suppliers that we look at and obviously they're, they're, they're hybrids and so forth, but there's the full service research, there's the field services, there's technology providers, data and analytics providers and strategic consultancies. And what we've seen particularly over the last year is the percentage that define themselves as strategic consultancies has dropped. And their service portfolio has changed a bit. The ones that have, that are full service have rebounded and technology has rebounded. So what we're seeing is more, I think of a division of labor. And I think what we saw last year is that the many of the buyers of, of insight services had to take the business aspect of it in-house because so much was happening real time in terms of understanding the needs, in terms of I was uh, mentioning in here that they had to deal with a situation where it was not safe to deal with consumers and uh, research participants in the same way. They had novel issues to address, which they didn't have before. And they also needed to do a lot more uh, that had to be cost-effective. And that came into, I think the portfolio of technology that people used, as well as the portfolio of suppliers, where there was much more of, I, we talked about this, a division of labor, where for example, you might hire a full service provider, full service research provider to be your project coordinator, and they would hire the different aspects. They would hire the technology provider. They would hire the data and analytics and bring it together while you would focus on finding out what people internally needed and how you would serve them and communicating with them because. There wasn't a lot of time to go through many channels. There wasn't a lot of time to bring a new supply. And this is the other, the other major point when we see in the selection criteria for suppliers, we see all around relationship is much less important than it used to be. So people aren't just going back to the same people. They're having to find, to address the novel issues in novel ways, having to find novel solutions. So they have to go to new suppliers. So they don't have time for all those people to learn about their business while they try to survive COVID. So I think that's a lot of what we're seeing. Uh, when we compare this year, the areas for which insights groups are responsible versus last year to me seemed a lot like they're focusing on areas to maintain the business. Whereas a year before they were focused on areas to grow the business. Now there seem to be a lot more of them being able to f- focus more on, on growing the business and maintaining the long-term health of the business rather than trying to find stopgap solutions to, to keep afloat. That, right. That's how it seems to me.
1: No, and I think that's right. And for the audience, get, this is the, you know, a little bit of the dynamic between Nelson and I, right? He keeps my feet somewhat on the ground, at least maybe a pinky toe, while my head is going in other directions. And I, I you know, I'm obsessed with the idea of defining the market structure and the dynamics that drive that structure from an evolutionary perspective. That's my default view in thinking about grit overall and its usefulness is at some level of predictive tool, right. To give uh, at least some signals on where things may go. And yeah, you know, based on that piece of the conversation, I would say that the more things change, the more they stay the same, that although we are, I think we've certainly seen an adjustment of uh, size of pie by segment with technology probably being the best example uh, of that from a growth perspective. But at the same time, to your point, fully rebounded. While uh, groups that we thought were going to grow well, even a few years ago, like strategy consultancies, uh, that was the big thing. All the full-service companies wanted to be strategy consultancies, but looks like now, not so much. They're back to being, we're comfortable being full-service suppliers, which seems that... Yeah, awesome. than that point? Uh, yeah, go ahead. When we talk
2: about whether full-service providers, for example, want to provide strategic consulting or not, they still say that's one of their revenue sources. It's just for fewer of them, their primary revenue source, because there was a lot of focus in the last year of just being able to get things done. And so what we see when we look at the methodology sections of this is we see what probably a lot of people would have predicted that last year, there was an increase in remote methods, online, telephone, and so forth to conduct research rather than in-person methods. No surprise there. And that's a year old now. What we see this year is that some of those have increased a little bit. But mostly they've leveled off. But what we've seen is the continued decline of in person methods, as well as a decline in some of the more traditional methods like telephone interviewing, which isn't, which you can do in COVID, you know, but obviously that there there are challenges to doing telephone interviewing. But some of these more traditional areas that are not in person are also declining. And the hypothesis is that people were forced to use some of these newer methods, some of these online methods and remote methods last year. Just to be able to get their work done and decided now when things are returning more towards a more normal perspective at least in the time that we've been doing the analysis they find that they, they like them and they don't necessarily want to go back to the old ones or you could take a dimmer view and say that more of the people that provided those kind of services aren't around anymore hmm. so it's just not available to go back to that
1: yeah well so the idea of the sea change right if i had to sum up an overall view i would say that the many trends that we have already seen in place for years accelerated the migration of technology et cetera, et cetera. right those are mm-hmm. the obvious ones and the proportion of how technology is redefining even the service-based sector of our, our industry while the sea change and as you just pointed out really was that shift towards and particularly qualitative and things where it stands out the most and from an in-person perspective that ship has sailed Yes, he did change the th- there was the necessity to shift to light qualitative for instance and now those folks yeah i like it why would we go back when we've proven that we can achieve most of our objectives in a more scalable easy safer way and i would not expect to see in person bounce back at, at the level that it was the i think we'll find new use cases for in-person anything sensory For instance, we're not there yet. Maybe when the metaverse launches and they'll have some, you know, type of, of a device that (laughs) duplicates our senses, but we're not there yet. So those will continue on while the scalability of online qual seems to trump the benefits of the immediacy of being face to face. So that's a sea change, but I don't see a lot more massive sea changes into your and, and go back to your original thought on the day in the life that was a great example right we kept expecting to see some big change in people allocating their time and that's not really what we've seen the we've seen people still do things they've always done although so, so the proportions are not necessarily changing radically if anything maybe the volume of the activities are changing to an extent, but not as it fits in with the overall change. The industry is in an interesting state of flux and change, but it seems as if it is a natural progression of evolution versus a disruptive, oh crap, everything has changed kind of moment. I don't see much evidence yeah. of disruption.
2: Yeah, I- I want to go back to the, what you first said, which was about how you brought me into this to change how we're doing everything. And so one of it is, you know, what I said about the day in the life is that the percentages on average do not change. They, have, they, have, there's absolutely, there's not even, in some cases there might be a one percent change, but there's no change. But if you look below the surface, and this is the thing, is that things on average, they're canceling each other out. There's just as many people. It seems to be just as much work being brought in house as being outsourced more. And we actually, this time added a question, are you outsourcing more or bringing more, more work in house? And we saw that there's about a quarter that are outsourcing more and there's about a quarter that are doing more in house more than they were before. So it's not that nothing is disrupted. It's just, it's not universally disruptive in the same way to everybody.
1: Ah, so like the, the William Gibson quote, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Um, Sure.
2: Yeah. yeah, but then back to the, uh, how we got off on this, t- I, I pushed this off on tangent, which is actually one of our, one of our main conversation streams, I think. But you had been talking about whether uh, people are, have given up on strategic consulting, whether they should be giving up on data visualization. I just wanted to return to that for a minute because that's where we jumped off onto this, but people are offering strategic consultants, consulting and strategic services. It's. It just seems like the mix has changed more to where people have had to get more of their revenue from research than from consulting. Partly I think because stuff needed to get done and that's where buyers had to put their money, but also because buyers had to spend more time doing this, the consulting and doing the business aspect of it and couldn't bring by, couldn't bring suppliers up to speed. I don't know if that will come back or not, but they're still saying that's among their services. So it might, but. That would be one of the things to watch is if this relationship where people are really as comfortable with an, somebody external being somebody who's positioned as an internal, you know, as someone who is a true partner and they're like an employee and whatnot. I don't know how feasible that is and how versus how much more comfortable buyers are taking that role in their own organizations. On the data visualization point, let's remember when we look at the big buckets, technology providers. And data and analytics providers are very focused on data visualization, but they're providing it, they're providing those capabilities to buyers. So it's not as though suppliers should give up on that. It's just who is doing it might change from business to business. I don't know that buyers are waiting for suppliers to come in and take a stronger role consulting like that and doing the data visualization. I think they see a distinction between reporting and data visualization.
1: well yeah as is and maybe that's been the always been the disconnect from a research world right we're really good at reporting results um we're just not very creative and how we report the result yeah. i'm not sure how the audience thinks about grip but to give you a little peek in how the sausage is made th- those nice cool pretty charts that, that we use those aren't things that nelson and i develop we have designers who do that so we deliver tables <laughs> the designers base the de- go into the data tables and create a chart off of that so we're not very imaginative but that does bring up uh into something that is new or different in this wave and, and let's talk about it because we've, we've touched on the idea on uh on mapping the industry visualizing the industry and those who follow grit for a few years we we used our gritscape a lumescape that was this Fun map model that we used, kind of a Game of Thrones fantasy world, and that's my geekiness that was manifesting. We pulled back from that uh, this year, not just because we thought it was just time to do something different, but it wasn't reflective of the industry. So that those questions that you forced us to add on looking at a uh, proportion of revenue by different, different offerings, products and services across the board in driving this idea of trying to understand what is a really such thing as a pure technology company for instance was one of the the obvious examples of that no there's not right as we look at that we see that every company is still doing lots of different things and is generating revenue that their proportion of revenue may be higher for technology licensing but there is significant service oriented revenue involved in their businesses as well so to map that out, and this is one of the things I'm going to give you credit, Nelson, uh, we're really trying to struggle, that. how do we show this? Because it's just like a big, messy, nasty Venn diagram, you know, when you think about it from an overlap perspective. But we started thinking, is there a way to to almost show this as a, in a spatial way of uh, some type of of almost quadrant type of analysis? And you cracked that code on how to do that. And there's lots of complications in doing it. The but do you want to describe what we've come up with at a high level in in showing the relationship between big bucket and sub-segments visually that we'll be debuting in in this grid report?
2: Yeah, I mean, it really gets back to something that I think is important for people that conduct surveys, for example, is we have this, we ask people about, now I think it's like 25 services. Do you offer it or not, or not? And we ask them which one is primary. And I know from the comments that people leave, some of them are frustrated because they say they're all equally important. It's like, okay, yeah, okay, fine. <clears throat> you can think that, but when we ask people to say, which one is most important or just to pick one, regardless, they might think that they're making an arbitrary choice of which one is most important, but it does help to focus things. There is some meaning to the top of mind, how do I de- identify myself, even if many things apply. And so we use that in the visualization. We used all the services, do you offer them or not, and then what's your where do you Where do you get most of your revenue from? full service, strate- strategy, data an- analytics. And I guess one of the things, lenny, that the result of putting all those together is that we came up with something came up with something that we probably would have drawn by hand because yeah. it's intuitive. So we've got if we think in terms of quadrants, we have on the one side the generalists, the strategic consultants, and the full service providers. On the other side, the specialists, the data and analytics, technology and field services providers, at the top, we have more of the consulting type areas. At the bottom, we have more of the getting the research done type areas. So we have those four quadrants. And then if we look at the real, so we have strategy, generalist versus specialist and strategy versus tactical strategic versus tactical research. And then within those, if we look at the detail, we can also see that there are areas where online services have grouped together, uh, in person or other, not specifically online services are grouped together and, you know, you get a, you get a clearer picture of what are the combinations of things that people are offering that, that are most common. Does that answer your question?
1: Well, it does. And we're also, we're trying to, to explain something that's inherently visual, just using words. But I think the, the point, the, the high level view, and I think the audience will see this when you see the report is that there's a, uh, One, we've made, we've tried to do something really cool and interactive and we'll see whether we succeed or not. I think it'll be, I think it's pretty cool, but the overall view is to show the complexity of relationships between the supplier community based upon revenue contribution of services and solutions. And the message there is that it is a very intertwined industry, right? It, you know, sometimes I'm, people will say, you use the word ecosystem too much. We work in a synergistic ecosystem. That's just the way that it is. It's a very complex industry. There's lots of interrelationships. No man is an island, so to speak, right? There's very few kind of really, truly standalone companies that are not interconnected with others. Uh, And I think that's only going to grow in complexity as more and more companies enter the space from outside. We'll see as things progress, but it's also one of those evolutionary components of the report that I think keep it really interesting for you and I, hopefully interesting for the audience as well. You know, you've always been kind of behind the scenes when it comes to to grit, obviously, which is one reason why I wanted to do this. If there's something you've always wanted to say to the industry, now be careful here, Nelson, because I can imagine there's a few things you might want to say.
2: Uh, <laughs> this will be edited, right? Uh
1: about grit, what would that be? Well, you've always wanted to, to communicate to everybody about grit.
2: Well, to be perfectly honest, you know, we read all of the comments that people leave, we read the emails that they send about it. And, you know, just to start on one end, I understand a lot of the frustrations that some people have and a lot of the limitations and a lot of the criticisms that they have, but We know that too, and we deal with it. So it's constantly evolving. We're constantly doing additional analysis to test whether any of these criticisms under undermine what we're trying to report. And, you know, like I said, one of them might be, you know, people don't want to pick what their primary service area is. And I understand that because that's true of any survey that people answer. But when we look at the results, there is some meaning to it. When you look at the population. There's some meaning to it. It helps us organize it. And we understand that there is a lot of complexity. We understand that some of the questions are simplifications. We understand some of the conclusions are simplifications, but I would think something I would like to, I guess, tell people would be to spend as much time as you can looking through the whole report. And you'll see that we aren't making generalizations about things. We're pulling things back layer upon layer as much as we can to show all the individuality and diversity in the industry. Because it isn't one thing. Something else that supports this, and you read in the first part of the GRIT report, we talk about the sampling method and so forth. It's a very, we don't say who's in and who's out. We contact people and let them say if they're in the industry or out of the industry. So in this way, the GRIT survey has the potential to grow as the industry goes, to identify new niches. Now, it may take us a wave or two for the questions to catch up with the new people who have come in. But we catch up and we, you know, it's a constantly evolving process and it's a very thoughtful process.
1: Thank you. Now, one of the cool things too that's happened in the past year or so is that we obviously grit's a beast from a size standpoint, right? It just is. There's a lot to cover and and we've played different ways to try and cut it down. And you know what, it could easily be two to three times as long. Uh, but we've started exploring spinoff reports with new things. Can you describe the spinoff reports and and the surprises that have come for you as a result of that?
2: I've always felt that that even as we use more of this in each grit report, that there's still some that's underutilized and we know that we want to, to some extent, have portion control because there's a lot to digest in any one issue. So part of that is reflected in moving this to a digital HTML version where people can skip around to what they want to see and pick and choose although the the whole report, I'm always surprised by the time we get to the end of it that every section seems to be pretty valuable, but there's other areas that we take a deep dive in. At the beginning of last year, we put out field guides what we called field guides to help with targeting customers so the suppliers could use that to target their customers. And the original idea was, yeah, let's do a field guide. And what it became was seven field guides because you can't come up with one set of recommendations or one set of things to think about for strategic consultants, consultancies that also applies to field services providers. It's just not responsible. So we put the time into doing seven of those and, and put those out. We are about to release the industry benchmarking report, which looks at different behaviors and different ways of doing business within different segments so that we can compare, uh, so that people can look at it and say, oh, my business is the same as others. We need to differentiate or my business is the same as others. We can leave that alone. Cause that's not an issue. You can look at it through whatever lens you want, whether being the same is, is good for you or whether being different would be a better strategy for you. But what we try to do in all of these, I think Lenny, you've written this in one of the, maybe in the forward or something is we want people to see themselves in the report, if we just report the top line findings across suppliers, for example, a technology provider is not going to see themselves in that and a a full service provider might, because they might be a bigger part of the sample, but what you want to do is you want to be able to use the report to see what matters to you. If you're a small company, you want to know what does this mean for small companies? If you're a big company, what does this mean for a big company? You know, I I always felt coming from smaller companies, I read the old grid reports. And I think this is interesting, but this doesn't really have anything to do with my small company. And so we're trying to bring that out more so that any, so that people don't just see, you know, like spaghetti thrown against the wall or whatever. They see a particular pattern that applies to uh, what they're trying to do and they can see themselves in the reports.
1: Yep. Oh, and there's more to come. and We'll continue to experiment with that so for the audience nelson and i make copious use of slack often when writing and sharing quotes from songs or movies or books and he wins every time this man has an encyclopedic he's almost an autodidact in terms of his memory to be able to memorize the most obscure reference you can possibly think of from any type of media it impresses the hell out of me all of the time. If you ever get a chance to just sit down and chat with Nelson about popular culture and particular music and movies, it's it is time well spent.
2: Yeah. So Lenny, on that point, we could have a contest, and this might encourage people to read more of the Grit Report. To whoever is the first to identify all the Beatles, references, <laughs> the first to identify the Doors reference.
1: There. So guys, there are Easter eggs in Grit. It's how Nelson and I entertain each other. Most of them are his, but there are Easter eggs. But Nelson, for a wrap-up, just to humanize this whole thing, what are you currently watching, reading, and listening to that you're just really enjoying right now?
2: Yeah, well, this is a leading question because, you know, for Christmas. Well,
1: the audience doesn't, so no. Yeah,
2: I know. For Christmas, I got the uh, Complete Dark Shadows, which is a 1966 to 1971 TV series, Daily Soap. So over those five years, there's twelve hundred seventy-three episodes. So I'm making my way through those. I'm in uh, around number four
1: thirty. Very cool. What about reading?
2: Uh, the original Gold Key series, Dark Shadows comic books. Okay. No, I'm actually reading. I'm actually reading uh, uh, novels. I've been reading uh, Master and Commander, which everybody has told me. Whenever people rave about it, they say how how wonderful it is, and so I've always been intimidated to try to read it because it's. Um, when people rave that much about something, I think it might be too hard for me. So it has been taking me a long time to make it through it because it's about the Napoleonic Wars and in particular, naval activities in the Napoleonic Wars. So every third word is a word I have to look up either because it's an archaic reference or because it's a nautical term. So it's taking me a long time to go through that. And I had just finished reading a crime novel from, takes place in 1933 in Germany after the Weimar Republic has collapsed and Hitler has taken over. And that I also had to, I also had to look up a lot of stuff in that because it's really interesting how they bring you into the everyday reality of it by referring to these things that for me, unless I look it up, I don't know what that meant to somebody in Germany in 1933. So learning more, uh, it's a way of learning more about the film industry, more of learning more about the history more of learning about the cultural sites and so forth. So an example of what
1: I can. Been... Thank you. Oh, and yes, I did know those, but I trust your taste and think our audience may enjoy it as well. So Nelson, thank you for uh, making the time. This was long overdue. I'm sure that we will do this again with other iterations of grit and really appreciate you sharing your time with with me and with Green Book Podcast and our audience.
2: Thank you for the opportunity.
1: All right. Everybody be well and we'll have another one of these coming out real soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.